Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Welcome to Killer Women Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is J.A. Jans. J.A. is the New York Times bestselling author of the J.P. Beaumont series, the Joanna Brady series, the Allie Reynolds series, five interrelated thrillers about the Walker family, and one volume of poetry. Born in South Dakota and brought up in Bisbee, Arizona, she lives with her husband in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, J.A. Hi, I'm glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you. I was, um, I love at the beginning of your book, it talks about, there's like an incredible list of all the J.A. Jance books there are. So once you get hooked on J.A., you've got a lot, lot, lot of reading to catch up on. So, well, I started started writing in, in, I started writing novels in 1982 and started working on the first Detective Beaumont book in 1983. So I've been writing books at a rate of 1.6 books a year. And it usually takes me six months to write a book. Blessing of the Lost Girls is a huge exception to that because I wrote that book from start to finish in two months flat. Wow. Well, it's a very powerful book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? And also, I love, love what they've done with the cover here. It's so beautiful. Well, I particularly like the dream catcher in Lost. Mm -hmm. This is a book about murdered and missing Indigenous women. That's big news today. But it was... It was a reality of life when I was on the reservation as a teacher librarian in the late 60s and early 70s. And the first Walker book, this makes number six now. It says in the bio that it's five, but this makes number six. Got it. Uh, it, When I wrote the first Walker book, Hour of the Hunter, which was published in 1990, that was a murdered Tahona Adam girl from the reservation. And in the book, her killer is captured, but is and is actually sent to prison, but he actually gets a slap on the wrist. And in Hour of the Hunter, he's back out and looking for the people who put him away. But um, just as an aside, some people tell me the Walker books are too dark, but you know, I really had fun with Hour of the Hunter, because in 1964, I wasn't allowed in the creative writing program at the University of Arizona, because as the professor told me, you're a girl. (laughs) Girls become teachers or nurses, boys become writers. So in Hour of the Hunter, the crazed killer turns out to be a former professor of creative writing from the University of Arizona. And, and why did I have been making him evil? <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure. I mean, that's, tell us about that. I mean, you have, you, you know, you're a pioneer um, female author in this genre when 
like right people said no to you i'm sure to women well a lot of people said no but i i had the dream of becoming a writer from the time i was in second grade on and i guess determination is my middle name the i my first husband who was allowed in that creative writing program and never published anything told me shortly after we married that there was only going to be one writer in our family and he was it. Mm. So I didn't actually start writing until after I was divorced, single mom, full-time job selling life insurance. The time I had to write was four o'clock in the morning until seven when I got the kids up to go to school. So no amount of no's stopped me. And once, once I sat down to write that first book, I was on fire and I've been on fire ever since. Amazing. But, but I think part of it, I, I've realized just in the past few days when I've been, people have asked me, well, why, are you, why did you put those legends in the books? Well, when I started writing the Walker family books, of which this is number six, I wanted to bring the reservation and what reservation life was like to people who would never come there. Right. Uh, I was a K through 12 librarian. And for, I started being a librarian when I only had six units of library science under my belt. And so I was being a librarian while I was taking classes to become a librarian. And it was easy because in every class I knew exactly what I needed to learn. Right, yeah. In the spring of that first year on the reservation, my the class I took was a children's literature class. And that was where the teacher had us stand up and tell stories. And it was like, I found where I was supposed to be and what mm -hmm. I was meant to do. So for those four years, I told 26 stories a week in K through six classrooms. And uh, many, many of the stories that I told are the, the regular ones we all heard in school, Little Engine that, that could make way for ducking, ducklings. But I also learned and told the stories of the desert people. And so when I began writing those books, I wanted to weave those legends into the fabric of the story and I, I've done that in all six of the books yeah they're beautiful I mean it's a it is such a cultural a strong cultural element in in that in those stories um you know I it, it I think it it plays beautifully with the the story and there are so many rich characters in this that I know come from you know other places we have you know we have Walker we have you know, we have Joanna Brady and now her daughter, and it's there's just so much sort of wonderful stuff. And like you said, this you started writing these books before sort of Lost Girls and and those things were really called attention to. So tell us about your time in the reservation and and how did you? I mean, you grew up in um, Arizona, so that there's obviously you know, a lot of indigenous people. But how did you end up there? I grew up in the southeast corner of. Arizona in Cochise County. And there was never a mention of Cochise, the chief, 
there was a hill called Geronimo, but it was as though the school system had just erased that whole aspect of, of history. And so when I went to the reservation, I the, the librarian quit three days before school was supposed to start. And they offered me the job to come because my husband already had a contract there. And you drive to cells in this on this flat plane. And then just before town, you go up over this little pass. And whenever we went over that pass each morning on our way to school, I I felt this sense of being an outsider and of not belonging. I made friends on the reservation. I talked one woman into, she was 28 years old. She had five kids. She had a drunk for a husband, a much older husband. And I talked her into, I tried to encourage her. I said, you know, you're really smart. You could, you could, you could go to college. And I said, why don't you go to night school and just take one class and see how you do? So she, we talked about it and she said she would go. And the next day was registration and we planned to go into town and get her registered and come back. The next day she came to school with two black eyes mm. and had beaten the crap out of her. We closed the library that day. We talked all that day. And finally at 4.30 in the afternoon, she said, I want to show my kids a different path. I'll go. So we went in, we got her registered. Melissa never got her own degree, but her daughter, her daughter, Vivian, was elected tribal chairman. She earned her BA degree. She earned her master's degree and she's working on her dissertation. And of course she's done all the hard work but I feel as though I had that tiny contribution. Of course, of course. And so my next aide in the library was Pauline Hendricks. And when, when I left, she said, I'm leaving too, because the next person, who, this is our library, but the next person isn't going to act like it's my library too. And so I'm going, she got a job as a social worker and she discovered that the that the trading post on the reservation had worked with the previous social worker and changed the addresses of welfare recipients to the high store. So the checks went to the high store. They took what was owed to them and gave the change back to the recipient. Mm. So Pauline put a stop to that. But when I left, she gave me a little Indian basket. It's an owl. It's sitting right over there on the mantel. And she mm -hmm. said, if you can't make it with your own tribe, you can always come back here. That's amazing. So I feel this, this attachment. Of and course. That, I think that love shows through. It yeah. does. But of course, Dan Pardee is mm -hmm. also 
stranger to this reservation because he is Apache. Yeah. And in Tahana Autumn, the word Oop means both enemy and Apache simultaneously. But all the other tribes around Arizona, whatever the word they use for Apache is also the word they use for enemy. <laughs> That's interesting, right? Those Apaches were troublemakers everywhere. I love that um, the you know the medicine woman aspect and the chairman and there's all these beautiful sort of and I think you know obviously this is a displaced and you know underprotected community that you've been you know writing about since the early 80s which is a you know because now missing indigenous women has gained like you said so much attention in the last um, you know few years in particular but you've been doing this for you know 40 years right yes. 40 years well I, no i didn't write the first walker book until 1990. okay so, so 33 years it's still a really yeah. long time <laughs> the high point of my career was when i was invited to do a signing on the reservation and they had young people come out and do a circle dance being in the circle is a big issue in in all in in most of the indigenous societies that I know of, and so I was at this. I was the guest of honor at this event, and they brought a group of. And oh, when we were on the reservation, my husband went to the wine dance and danced in the and sat in the circle. I was at home with a baby, so I didn't mm -hmm. get to go. Mm -hmm. And then until the time he died, he read my nose in the fact that he got to sit in the circle and mm -hmm. I did. And so at this event, they brought the MC said, okay, a group of young people are going to come out. They're going to do a circle dance. And please don't take any photos of the circle dance. But when we open it up for social dancing, then you're welcome to take pictures and uh, join the circle. So I'm sitting there watching those kids dancing on, thinking, you know, Judy, you've been pissed about not being in the circle for all that time. Isn't it about time you put your money where your mouth is? And so when they opened it for social dancing and I stood up and went down to join the circle, they gave me a standing ovation. Mm. But that isn't the best part of it. When we got to that event, it was in March. So there were a lot of snowbirds and snowbirds had come all the way out to the reservation to see this. And so I was down there dancing and I was thinking, my life isn't going to get any better than this. And then those Milgon women, the Anglo women from all those out of state, they came down and danced in the circle too. Mm, get the shivers. That is the high point of my literary career. I've never had anything. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, that's, I mean, and another thing about this early writing is, is that you were protecting the, like women, you're talking about sort of the power of women and the strength of women at a time when, you know, we were largely dismissed as you were to be like, you know, limited to very few jobs and to be home with kids. And, you know, so you, you know, you were, sort of charging ahead with this, you know, with this 
empowering yourself and therefore showing younger women what could be done, you know? Yes. I, it, it, it feels, I don't feel like a pioneer. I feel like I'm doing what I was always meant to do, but, but maybe that's what pioneers are. <laughs> I mean, you were, yeah, by following the, you know, your own passion, you did, you let, you opened doors for, for people who followed, not just native American, you know, indigenous women, people, but also, you know, other writers, I'm sure, you know, once you sort of proved it could be done. Now, there's a couple of organizations in the book that I, uh, that you mentioned, one is MIP, um, and one is Name Us. Uh, um, can you tell M about those? MIP, I made up, but okay. Name Us is a real thing. And I, I try to put that into the books, because people who have lost relatives, that is a database that they're able to access and act, they can activate, they can put in their own um, information, their own DNA profile. They can put in a victim's dental records. So law enforcement can access, name us, and so can, so can regular people. That's so, powerful. We can help if we were missing people. But MIP, I, I decided I was going to create a federal agency, and I know there now there is one, but I had more fun creating mine. Of course, of course, and you have a you were I mean you probably were ahead of the curve with them. So do you feel like you know you've seen this you've you've had experience with reservations and indigenous people over all these years? Do you feel like there is progress around you know protecting uh, indigenous women and solving cases of lost girls? Well, I. I think there is, there's more attention to it. And I think I, they they simply have to, how, how people get lost, how, how the cases don't get solved is this morass of jurisdictional disputes where nobody ever takes responsibility. I, in 1970, see over the years, God has given me several, lemons and I've turned them into lemonade. <laughs> in seventy, my first husband and I were stalked for 60 days by a serial killer who killed people at 20 minutes after two on the 22nd day of the month. And um, he, wow. he killed, a, he forced a woman off the highway at gunpoint shot her, raped her in front of her two small children and left her to die. And then he gave my husband a ride home to our house an hour later. Mm. So we got sucked into that investigation because when we heard they were looking for a guy in a green car and something about two little kids, my husband said, well, I wonder if that's the guy who gave us a ride home. And actually it was. That case was solved because it was an Anglo killed by another Anglo on the reservation. And Pima County, the Jack Lyons, Pima County's chief homicide cop took control of that investigation. But the if, if it had been an Indian who had been killed on the reservation, it would have been either the FBI or the tribal police and, and nothing would have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. 
Because the tribal, I mean, the, the tribal police have jurisdiction only within the reservation, right? So it's a trick of where something happens and, um, and you know, where something happens, who's involved. So in Montana, you'd be amazed at how many indigenous women die of um, domestic abuse. No, not well, yes, but but they just go out into the woods somewhere off the reservation and they just die because they get too cold. I can't think uh, of the right thing. To yeah, say exposure. They die of exposure. Okay, thank you. See, You're welcome. But sometimes worse. Of course, that happens to all of us. I'm actually in Montana. That's where I live. I'm in, um, I'm in Bozeman, Montana. And I have heard about, I have, I mean, there's a lot of that, that we hear about, but, um, and why do you suppose that is? Are they just trying to escape or? Well, who wants to have an open unsolved case? So let's just ignore it. It'll oh, call it that. I see. That's just a blanket statement for when women, you know, disappear. They they probably walked into the woods and died of exposure. They just walked away, yes. They got tired of it and they just walked away. Which really doesn't happen ever. Hardly ever. Hardly ever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just all swept under the rug. Yeah, that's just. But so I, so brutal. I'd like to go back to blessings for a minute. We're way, yes. way subject, but this is fun. I'm sorry. No, it's this is your show. You talk. Tell us. Write another book. When a friend called and told me about a man named James. James was a um, a Sioux, a member of the Rosebud Sioux working in uh, a small community in Oregon when he had an encounter with a guy who was known as the boxcar killer. And uh, his, I, he, the boxcar killer rode the, roamed the West in the, in the 90s, uh, going, riding trains and his, he did hate crimes by pushing Native Americans under moving trains. Yeah. James in Oregon had an encounter with him. He was pushed under a train, dragged for a mile and a half that it took for the engineer to stop the train. Mm -hmm. Cops up, pronounced him dead, zipped him into a body bag, and took him to the morgue in the basement of the community hospital. And when he, um, at the hospital, it was a small town, and one of the nurses in the hospital knew he knew him, knew he was Sue, and when she got off shift, she went downstairs to wash his hair, and when she unzipped the body bag, his arm came out, because he wasn't dead. Mm. So he went straight from the morgue to the OR. He, it took countless operations and hospital stays to sort of duct tape him back together. And during his hospital stays where he had to, he became a paraplegic. He had to, lost the use of his right hand. He had to learn to speak again. He had to learn to read again. Before he was able to read, one of my friends and fans volunteered at that hospital and she would go to his room and read to him. And because she loved my Walker books more than anything, she read those to him. 
uh, James recovered enough that he spent the next 20 years counseling disaffected Native American youth in the Portland area. Mm -hmm. But in 2021, shortly before his death, he called Loretta and he told her, tell your friends to write more Walker books. There aren't enough Indian heroes. Yeah. This is that book. And when you encounter the character of the chair, John, yeah, you know that James has now become yeah. an hero. Yes, he, and you're talking about the chairman, and it is a very such a moving character. And the relationship between, um, you know, he and the um, medicine woman now, my name now, the name is oh, escaping me. Yes, it's so powerful that they, that, you know, sort of mutual respect of their. Their, their skills and their, their you know, po the powers that they have. But I, that's an incredible story. And I mean, the fact that somebody could be dragged for a mile and a half and survive is just, I love that you put that in into a book. Well, so that's in the book. The other thing is I, I live with my characters. My characters have all aged as, as I've aged and, and they, They've moved through their lives. We meet, we met Jenny, Jennifer Brady, Joanna yeah. Brady's in Desert Heat as a nine-year-old little girl who had just had a smidgen of sex ed at Greenway School. And on the eve of her parents' 10th anniversary, she counted on her fingers and figured out there weren't quite enough months. <laughs> yeah. And, asked her mother if she was a preemie. Of course, she wasn't a preemie. The wedding was late. She was right mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. But now we see Jenny, who grew up thinking she wanted to be a vet, but she's lived with her mother in law enforcement. And yeah. as a college, she changed her major to criminal justice. And she plays an invaluable role she in, really does in this book and she really comes into her own she doesn't want she becomes involved in this case but she doesn't want her involvement to be based on her connection with her mother right she wants it to be based on her own skills and i i it's wonderful to see her growing oh, up yeah She's, I mean, and I, I would, ex I mean, I would expect her to be around in, you know, in future books because she really does. Well, there's a little hint there at the end that uh, we might see her again in the future, which is really, really fun. So you have all these characters, Jay, like how, I mean, do you have some sort of massive map of all these? Are they all living inside your brain? How, how do you keep track? They all live in my brain. I do have a name file and I use that to keep to keep track of Dan Pardee's green eyes, for example. Yes. Uh, but, and I move that name file, it's the name file in one title. And then when it's time to write the next book, I go to the, the new file and bring, drag the name file over. So I have access to all that information. But for the most part, those people are all in my head. I mm -hmm. I know them. And when it, I 
I just finished writing the next Beaumont book. And within a few paragraphs of writing about Bo in the first person, his books are always in the first person because he wouldn't do anything in the third person. <laughs> in third person, that guy was dead in the water. But as soon as he, I was writing the first Beaumont book and I had been trying to get it to come to order for about six months and I finally sent my kids to camp on spring break and I I went to I was going to go down to Portland and spend five days with a friend from my days in the insurance business but I got on the train with a stack of blue line notebooks and a bunch of ballpoint pens and as the train pulled out of the King Street station I thought well what would happen if I wrote this book through the detective's point of view so I got out of a pad of paper and a pen and I wrote she might have been a cute kid once that was hard to tell now she was dead Whoa. Uh, and, and that was Bo that was Bo Bo I was as soon as I wrote those sentences I was on the backside of Magnolia Bluff I was walking around a crime scene I was seeing what he saw walking in his shoes hearing what he heard but I was also hearing what's going on inside his head and actually this is the 40th anniversary of the time in March in 1983 when I wrote those first words in Beaumont wow. number one and I've just finished writing Beaumont number 26. Oh my oh my so tell me like this is sort of it's a magical thing to hear you know and, and I think as writers we experience this but as you know non-writers it's it's impossible to understand but I ha describe to us like what you know what happens in your it, when you're in the when you're in a book you said like you know Bo would only speak to you in first person he wasn't gonna have anything to do with third person but you know obviously Pardee and Brady they're all Walker these books are third person so what do you think happens like what's the, how does the magic happen for you well the magic happens I I the magic doesn't happen in an outline <laughs> That outlining, and Mrs. Watkins, sixth grade geography class, I hated outlining then, I hate it to this day. So I generally, the magic happens, I generally start with somebody dead, and I spend the rest of the book trying to find out who did it and how come. In Blessing, we start out meeting this guy who looks like this perfectly ordinary but somewhat mysterious snowbird and the his neighbors at the RV park have no idea that he's a serial killer. Mm -hmm. No idea. And every time they he has this wonderful set of maracas right out there on his patio table, and whenever he's shaking them, they have no idea that they're actually dealing with victim with trophies. Yes. No that's a fabulous I love I'm don't we're not gonna talk anymore about that because you have to read the book and figure out what those are which I thought was so so I, clever because hiding them in plain sight it was really I loved that but I do love the little old lady who brought that guy down me I, too she did it she did it yeah I but, mean you can't discount little like little old ladies they were we're attentive we're obs you know we're observant women we good for her and I'm that's one of my main advantages I 
I was six feet tall in seventh grade. Wow. Yeah. Six classes. I was smart. So I was a social disaster. So I was most, I was always an outsider. Always. And so what that made me was an observer as opposed to a participant. And that has served me in good stead as a writer because mm -hmm. I notice things that go right over other people's heads. Uh, my favorite, my favorite, favorite scene in Blessing of the Lost Girls is when Jenny's acquaintance, a young woman who Deb, was about, yeah. was, she was about to get in trouble with this sort of sketchy boyfriend when she was attacked and was actually saved by the sketchy boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Jenny can see can see the connection between the dead girl and her mother's jurisdiction and what happened in Albuquerque. So mm -hmm. he pulls that string together. But Jenny tells so the assault was never reported to the police mm -hmm. because she didn't, Debbie, the girl, Deb, didn't want her parents to find out about the sketchy boyfriend. Right, right. She says, you need to go tell your mother because your mother yeah. will be in your corner. So Deb takes her advice. And that scene between Deb and her mother is one that I I have goosebumps on my legs just yeah. thinking of that scene. I was very powerful. Because so, she really yeah. her parents aren't the people she always assumed them to be. And and when her mother tells her, you know, that thank God for that boyfriend. He was sketchy, but he saved you. But moving on, when you go back to school and you're looking for a boyfriend, look for the guy who comes to class every day. Right. The guy who isn't flashy. Yeah. He doesn't think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Somebody who'll get a job and bring home his paycheck. And I thought, boy, I wish somebody had made me listen to that advice when I was 18. <laughs> I mean, seriously, we all needed that kind of mother. Yeah, it's so true. Well, and it's a very, and I wondered, like, you know, there's something that's divulged there that in that scene that we won't talk about, but do, did that occur to you as you were writing the scene, the mother's, you know, her oh. confession, or did you know that already? Uh, I learned all of that the hard way, because when I was 18, I brought home my first boyfriend and introduced him to my parents, and my parents said, uh, he's a raging alcoholic. And I said, oh, you're just teetotalers. What do you know? And so I spent 18 years of my life trying to prove them wrong. Mm. Um, I finally divorced him. He died of chronic alcoholism at age 42, mm. a year and a half after I divorced him. But all those years when I was married to him and I wasn't supposed to be being a writer, after he, he passed out in his recliner at night, I was there on the hill by myself, seven miles to the nearest neighbor and or telephone. So wow. I dropped off little pieces of poetry. Yeah. And put them away and never looked at them again until after he died. I put them in the strong box. And 
After the Fire, my book of poetry is that is it's the story of that journey with that first yeah. husband. Yeah. And when he, after he died and I looked at the poetry again, I was shocked. It was like seeing my life in instant replay because the creative part of me understood the relationship was doomed far before I was willing yeah. to, to see it. And so After the Fire is this little book. It's a lovely little hardback because it has fireweed on the cover. Um, fireweed only grows after a forest fire. It only yeah. grows after a forest fire. But the title poem in After the Fire goes like this. I have touched the fire. It burned me, but I knew I lived. It seared me, but it made me whole. He called me. I went gladly, though I saw the rocks fell laughing through the singeing air. I have known the fire. I'll live with nothing rather than with less. The flame is out. There's nothing left but ash. Ah, that is really, really powerful. And when people, when people read that, when being involved with an addictive personality is so isolating and you feel yeah. like you're the only one who could possibly be that stupid. And when people in those situations are given that book, yeah, it's incredibly empowering. I hear from them. And those, those emails from people that have been helped by that book really, really touch me. But, but here's the thing. I have zero regrets. In terms of husband material, my first husband was a dead loss. But from the point of view of a murder mystery writer, the guy was a gold mine. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You had to go. It's like you said. You had to go through that fire to be to be who you are. And <laughs> I'm, I agree. I you know, I agree. And I'm. This is the first time I'll say this on air, but I'm going through a divorce. Um, we've been married thirty years, and um. Yeah, I don't regret a thing other than knowing that I am done. The uh, I was in the um, throes of that. Well, I hadn't actually filed for a divorce yet. I came home from church one Sunday and he had covered the doorknobs with olive oil because someone told him that would drive the evil spirit out of the house. The evil spirit, I had brought in a roommate because it's hard to hire a babysitter when you have a drunk living in the house. Right. And he's a drunk for a babysitter. So um, I came home and I couldn't get inside and I found out and he he staggered off into the bedroom and I went through the house and then I went out to the backyard. The bottle shattered as it hit the wall. I stood with arm upraised and knew that I had smashed it. It could as easily have been his head. The anger raged around me like a roaring flood. I wanted victims, and it wasn't hard to flush them from their hidden lairs. I broke the bottles one by one. I'm, I'm missing a line. I broke the bottles one by one with cool deliberation. By the very act of breaking them, 
I certified their victory. I took him to the doctor then, not because he needed it, I did. I mean, really, it's so powerful. I look forward to exploring the poetry that just, and it amazes me that you can just, you know, even on the spot, just that that is so deeply ingrained in you that you can pull those out. The experience was clearly so monumental in your existence and that's, and I know I can imagine that women are very helped and men too by the, you know, your, those words, because we all need to know that somebody else has been through what we're going through. And, and that you can come out on the other side that of course, the <clears throat> happily ever after part of this story is that in 1985, the, the book came out as poetry that after the fire came out initially in 1984 as a little paperback chapbook. And I was invited to do a poetry reading of that at a widowed retreat where I met a man whose first wife, Lynn, died on the same day of the year, two years after my husband died. Wow. So we struck up a conversation <clears throat> based on that coincidence. On the 21st of June, we got married on the 21st of December. <laughs> mm -hmm. we were, our, our five kids were not so fine, but, you know, 37 years later, we're, we're fine. And that's amazing says, he says my first husband was so bad that it's made his life perfect <laughs> i mean right comparison um that's one i'm i'm glad to hear that too that's a really that's you know these are the st stories that we share the way we prop each other up and we need more of that you know i think especially women so i'm so grateful um so tell us a little bit about what's coming now um, I'm assuming there'll be another Walker story, but right now the next thing is, you know, tell us. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> there were seven kids in our family. My mother cooked three meals a day for nine people without benefit of a microwave or a mechanical dishwasher. <sighs> and she had some rules, Ebby's Abby, rules. Uh, you eat a little bit of everything. You eat everything on your plate and no dessert until your plate is clean. So I brought that to my literary life and I'm not allowed to think about the next book until I clean my plate of the one I'm working on. Perfect. So I just finished writing Beaumont number 26. It's called Den of Iniquity. I, I had to get it done and get the editing done before this book tour started. And I did, it was in New York Sunday, a week ago. Congratulations. But it's, um, and again, Beaumont is out walking with his next door neighbor and his, and their two dogs. Bo has his second Irish wolfhound and uh, the neighbor, Hank Mitchell, has this obnoxious little chihuahua named Mr. Bean. And so, he comes home from this walk and there's a car in the driveway and he goes down to the car and his grandson steps out. His grandson lives nine hours away and it's 2.30 in the afternoon on a school day. So what's up? It turns out that the grandson's parents are getting a divorce. Uh, his mother has moved out his father has moved his pregnant girlfriend into the house and Kyle has run away to come see if he can live 
with Bo and Mel in Bellingham talk about <laughs> having your your uh, quiet existence totally uprooted. And so watching Bo's and Mel's reaction to having this young man come into their lives is was really rewarding for me. I loved writing that book. Well, you have such a passion for writing. It's so evident in the way you tell your storytelling and the way you talk about the, the, you know, the writing that it's, you know, it's been the thing you you've loved and cared for. And you obviously work at it really, really hard. It's amazing. When, when I was in college, I was, Bisbee was only a hundred miles away from Tucson where I was going to school. And my mother still had four kids at home, but once a week she would sit down and write me a letter telling, telling me what was going on back home. So I post a weekly blog. It's on my website, jhans.com slash blog. And it's a window on my world. It's, it's the weekly letter I write to my fans. I, Sometimes I talk about books. A lot of time I talk about writing. Sometimes I talk about my fish pond. You know, you, yeah. you, never, you never can tell with me. But I, during the pandemic, I've tried to consciously to have every one of those blogs be a little bit of something uplifting, something to make people smile, something to make them laugh, yeah. whatever. Do you see... That yeah. Oh, well, that's, oh, next to the pee pads. Let's not even talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's Rusty Warren. And I was impeached as the song leader of my dorm at um, the University of Arizona for teaching the girls to sing Roll Me Over in Clover at dinner time. Roll me over in the clover. Roll me over, lay me down and do it again. And that was a <laughs> song. And I, she was the one who, who came up with the words, knockers up. And in one of my alley books, I used that terminology and it came to Rusty Warren's attention and she wrote to me and that's how come I have a picture of her and, and a 45 RPM record of Roll Me Over in the Clover. Oh God, I love that story. I love that. That is, uh this it's so amazing. I, Jay, I'm so grateful for your time today. I love, I love hearing. I feel like I need to now go back and um, start all these series from the very beginning and read with you. And um, you are really impressive. There are there are I O what I call I O R S. Those are in order readers. Yes. And on my website, you can find. A, a book listed the downloadable one that lists all the books in all the series in chronological order. When I first started, they put them in alphabetical order and that didn't help anybody. Mm -mm. <laughs> well, and, but you know, I have to say, I mean, I have, this is my first Walker book, um, but I, I did not feel like, I know sometimes I feel like when I'm in the middle of a series, I feel like a little disoriented, but I, this actually worked very well for me as a standalone. You do a beautiful job of, you know, I'm sure readers who know these characters didn't feel like it was too much explanation, but also for those of us new, it felt very fluid. So I think you can, we could all pick up any book anywhere um, well, in your series. 
you see Diana Ladd as she is now. Yeah. In Hour of the Hunter, she was a young widow with a five-year-old child. Yeah. And so that's I think that's part part of why they seem the characters seem so real to me is I've lived with them as they've changed. Right. And both, and both started out in 1983 he was a drunk you know you're supposed to write what you know i happen to know a lot about drinking yes yes it sounds like you did it wasn't until four year four books later that my reader started pointing out that they thought Poe had a drinking problem Interesting. and he's he went into treatment in book number eight so there are a lot more books with him uh, in recovery than with him drinking, but I still have people who tell me they liked him better when he was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, that's the drunk part is probably fun for some, but not for everyone, right? Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I mean, congratulations on all your success and thank you for being, um, you know, continuing to write these incredible stories. I mean, you are so so clearly so loved and um i look forward to your blog i'm going to check that out because that is a um it's so fun to get i think so many readers love to hear what authors are doing so we'll send them to jajans.com forward slash blog and um and check it out in the meantime everyone i'm sure we will look forward to the, the next book we won't make you talk too much about what's coming next but we'll look forward to bow and then whatever follows thank you this is really good Oh, it's so fun. And you're such a fabulous storyteller, um, really. Um, everyone, this is Killer Women with Jay Jantz, who is just a superstar. And if you didn't just love hearing her stories, uh, she's amazing. I'm Danielle Gerard, and we will see you next time. Bye.